control. In the night, the compies scurried along the side of the road. Harding's jeep followed a short distance behind. Ellie pointed farther up the road. Is that a light? Could be, Harding said. Looks almost like headlights. The radio suddenly bummed and crackled. They heard John Arnold say, You there? Oh, there he is, Harding said. Finally, he pressed the button. Uh, yes, John, we're here. We're near the river following the compies. It's quite interesting. More crackling. Then... Eat your car! What'd he say? Gennaro said. Something about a car, Ellie said. At Grant Stig in Montana, Ellie was the one who operated the radio phone. After years of experience, she had become skilled at picking up garbled transmissions. I think he said he needs the car. Harding pushed the button. John, are you there? We can't read you very well, John. There was a flash of lightning, followed by a long sizzle of radio static. Then Arnold Tent's voice... Where are you? We're one mile north of the Hipsy Paddock, near the river following some compies. No. Damn. Get back it. Out. Sounds like he's got a problem, Ellie said, frowning. There was no mistake in the tension in the voice. Maybe we should go back. Harding shrugged. John's frequently got a problem. You know how engineers are. They want everything to go back by the book. He pressed the button on the radio. John, say again, please. More crackling. More static. The loud crash of lightning. Then, Mo, do need your car. L. Gennaro frowned. Is he saying Muldoon needs our car? That's what it sounded like, Ellie said. Well, that doesn't make any sense, Harding said. Other stuck Muldoon want car. I get it. Ellie said. The other cars are stuck on the road in the storm, and Muldoon wants to go get him. Harding shrugged. Why doesn't Muldoon take the other car? He pushed the radio button. John, tell Muldoon to take the other car. It's in the garage. The radio crackled. Not listen, crazy bastard car. Harding pressed the radio button. I said it's in the garage, John. The car is in the garage. More static. Edric has... One. I'm afraid this ain't getting us anywhere, Harding said. All right, John, we're coming in now. He turned the radio off and turned the car around. I just wish I understood what the urgency is. Harding put the jeep in gear and then rumbled down the road in the darkness. It was another ten minutes before they saw the welcoming lights of the safari lodge. And as Harding pulled to a stop in front of the visitor centre, they saw Muldoon coming toward them. He was shouting and waving his arms. God, Arnold, you son of a bitch, get this park back on track now, and bring back my grandkids now. John Hammond stood in the control room, screaming and stamping his little feet. He had been carrying on this way for the last two minutes while Henry Wu stood in the corner, looking stunned. Well, Mr. Hammond, Arnold said, Muldoon's on his way right now to do exactly that. Arnold turned away and lit another cigarette. Hammond was like every other management guy Arnold had ever seen. Whether it was at Disney or in the Navy, management guys always behaved the same. They never understood the technical issues. And I thought that screaming was the way to make things happen. And maybe it was if you were shouting at secretaries to get you a limousine. But screaming didn't make any difference at all to the problems that Arnold now faced. The computer didn't care if it was screamed at. The power network didn't care if it was screamed at. 
Technical systems were completely indifferent to all the explosive human emotion. If anything, screaming was counterproductive, because Arnold now faced the virtual certainty that Nedry wasn't coming back. Which meant that Arnold himself had to go into the computer code and try and figure out what had gone wrong. It was going to be a painstaking job. He'd need to be calm and careful. Why don't you go downstairs and go to the cafeteria, Arnold said, and get yourself a cup of coffee. We'll call you when we have more news. I don't want a Malcolm effect here, Hammond said. Don't you worry about the Malcolm effect, Arnold said. Will you let me go to work? God damn you, Hammond said. I'll call you, sir, when we have news from Muldoon, Arnold said. He pushed the buttons on the console and saw a familiar control screen's change. Stroke Jurassic Park main modules, stroke, cool labs. Include biostat.sys, include sysrom.vst, include net.sys, include power.module, stroke, initialize. Arnold was no longer operating the computer. He had now gone behind the scenes to look at the code, the line-by-line -line instructions that told the computer how to behave. Arnold was unhappily aware that the complete Jurassic Park program contained more than a half a million lines of code, most of it undocumented without explanation. Wu came forward. What are you doing, John? Checking the code. By inspection, they'll take forever. Tell me, Arnold said. Tell me. The road. Muldoon took the curve very fast, the jeep sliding on the mud. Sitting beside him, Gennaro clenched his fists. They were racing along the cliff road, high above the river, now hidden below them in darkness. Muldoon accelerated forward, his face was tense. How much further? Gennaro said. Uh, two, maybe three miles. Ellie and Harding were back at the visitor centre. Gennaro had offered to accompany Muldoon. The car swerved. It's been an hour, Muldoon said. An hour with no words from the other cars. They had the radios, Gennaro said. We haven't been able to raise them, Muldoon said. Gennaro frowned. If I was sitting in a car for an hour in the rain, I'd sure to try to use the radio to call for somebody. So would I, Muldoon said. Gennaro shook his head. You really think something could happen to them? The chances are, Muldoon said, that they're perfectly fine, but I'll be happier when I finally see them. Should be any minute now. The road curved and then ran up a hill. At the base of the hill, Gennaro saw something white, lying among the ferns by the side of the road. Hold it, Gennaro said, and Muldoon braked. Gennaro jumped out and ran towards the headlights of the jeep to see what it was. It looked like a piece of clothing. But there was a... Gennaro stopped. Even from six feet away, he could see clearly what it was. He walked forward more slowly. Muldoon leaned out of the car and said, what is it? It's a leg, Gennaro said. The flesh of the leg was pale blue, white, terminating in a ragged, bloody stump where the knee had been. Below the calf he saw a white sock and a brown slip-on shoe. It was the kind of shoe that Ed Regis had been wearing. By then Muldoon was out of the car, running past him to crouch over the leg. Jesus! He lifted the leg out of the foliage, raising it into the light of the headlamps, and blood from the stump gushed down over his hand. Gennaro was still three feet away. He quickly bent over, put his hands on his knees, squeezed his eyes shut and breathed deeply, trying not to be sick. Gennaro, Muldoon's voice was sharp. What? Move, you're blocking the light. Gennaro took a breath and moved. 
When he opened his eyes, he saw Muldoon peering critically at the stump. Torn at the joint line, Muldoon said. Didn't bite it, twisted and ripped it. Just ripped the leg off. Muldoon stood up, holding the severed leg upside down, so the remaining blood dripped onto the ferns. His bloody hand smudged the white socks as he gripped the ankle. Gennaro felt sick again. No question what happened, Muldoon was saying. The T-Rex got him. Muldoon looked up to the hill, then back at Gennaro. Are you all right? Can you go on? Yes, Gennaro said. I can go on. Muldoon was walking back towards the jeep, carrying the leg. I guess we better bring this along, he said. Doesn't seem right to leave it here. Christ is going to make a mess of the car. See if there's anything in the back, will you? A tarp or newspaper? Gennaro opened the back door and rummaged around in the space behind the rear seat. He felt grateful to think about something else for a moment. The problem of how to wrap a severed leg expanded to fill his mind, crowding out all other thoughts. He found a canvas bag with a toolkit, a wheel rim, and a cardboard box, and... Two tarps, he said. They were neatly folded plastic. Give me one, Muldoon said, still standing outside the car. Muldoon wrapped the leg and passed the now shapeless bundle to Gennaro. Holding it in his hand, Gennaro was surprised at how heavy it felt. Just put it in the back, Muldoon said. If there's a way to wedge it, you know, so it doesn't roll around. Okay. Gennaro put the bundle in the back and Muldoon got behind the wheel. He accelerated the wheels spinning in the mud, then digging in. The jeep rushed up the hill and for a moment at the top, the headlights still pointed upward into the foliage. And then they swung down and Gennaro could see the road before them. Jesus, Muldoon said. Gennaro saw a single land cruiser laying on its side in the centre of the road. He couldn't see the second land cruiser at all. Where is the other car? Muldoon looked around briefly, pointing to the left. There! The second land cruiser was twenty feet away, crumpled at the foot of a tree. And what's it doing there? The T-Rex threw it. Threw it? Gennaro said. Muldoon's face was grim. Let's get this over with he said, climbing out of the jeep. They hurried forward to the second land cruiser. Their flashlights swung back and forth in the night. As they came closer, Gennaro saw how battered the car was. He was careful to let Muldoon look inside first. I wouldn't worry, Muldoon said. It's very unlikely we'll find anyone. No? No, he said. He explained that during his years in Africa, he explained that during his years in Africa, he had visited the scenes of half-dozen animal attacks on humans in the bush. One leopard attack, the leopard had torn open a tent in the night and taken a three-year-old child. Then one buffalo attack in Amboseli, two lion attacks, one croc attack in the north, near Meru. In every case, there was surprisingly little evidence left behind. Inexperienced people imagined horrific proofs of the animal attacks, torn limbs left behind in the tent, trails of dripping blood leading away into the bush, blood-stained clothing not far from the campsite. But the truth was there is usually nothing at all. Particularly if the victim was small, an infant or a young child, the person just seemed to disappear, as if he had walked out into the bush and never come back. A predator could kill a child just by shaking it, snapping the neck, Usually there wasn't any blood. And most of the time you never found any other remains of the victims. Sometimes a button from a shirt or a sliver of rubber from a shoe. But most of the time nothing. Predators took children. They preferred children. 
and they left nothing behind. So Muldoon thought it highly unlikely that they would ever find any remains of the children. But as he looked in now, he had a surprise. I'll be damned, he said. Muldoon tried to put the scene together. The front windshield of the Land Cruiser was shattered, but there wasn't much glass nearby. He had noticed shards of glass back on the road, so the windshield must have broken back there, before the Tyrannosaurus picked up the car and threw it here. But the car had taken tremendous beating. Muldoon shone his light inside. Empty? Gennaro said tensely. Not quite, Muldoon said. His flashlight glinted off a crushed radio handset, and on the floor of the car he saw something else. Something curved and black. The front doors were dented and jammed shut, but he climbed in through the back door and crawled over the seat to pick up the black object. It's a watch, he said, peering at it in the beam of his flashlight. A cheap digital watch with a moulded black rubber strap. The LCD face was shattered. He thought the boy might have been wearing it, though he wasn't sure. But it was the kind of watch a kid would have. Now what is it, a watch? Gennaro said. Yes, and there's a radio, but it's broken. Is that significant? Yes, and there's something else, Muldoon sniffed. There was a sour odour inside the car. He shone the light around until he saw the vomit dripping off the side door panel. He touched it. Still fresh. One of the kids may still be alive, Muldoon said. Gennaro squinted at him. What makes you think so? The watch, Muldoon said. The watch proves it. He handed the watch to Gennaro, who held it in the glow of the flashlight and turned it over in his hands. Crystal is cracked, Gennaro said. That's right, Muldoon said. And the ban is uninjured. Which means? The kid took it off. That could have just happened any time, Gennaro said. Any time before their attack. No, Muldoon said. Those LCD crystals are tough. It takes a powerful blow to break them. The wash fence was shattered during the attack. So the kid took his watch off? Think about it, Muldoon said. If you were being attacked by a Tyrannosaur, would you stop and take your watch off? Maybe it was torn off. It's almost impossible to tear a watch off somebody's wrist without tearing the hand off, too. Anyway, the band is intact, no? Muldoon said. The kid took it off himself. He looked at his watch, saw it was broken, and took it off. He had the time to do that. When? It could have only been after the attack, Muldoon said. The kid must have been in the car after the attack and the radio was broken, so he left it behind too. He's a bright kid and he knew it wasn't useful. If he's so bright, Gennaro said, where'd he go? Because I'd be right here and wait to be picked up. Yes, Muldoon said, but perhaps he couldn't stay here. Maybe the Tyrannosaur came back or, or some other animal. Anyway, something made him leave. Then where'd he go, Gennaro said. Let's see if we can determine that, Muldoon said, and he strode off towards the main road. Gennaro watched Muldoon peering at the ground with the flashlight. His face was just inches from the mud, intent on his search. Muldoon really believed he was onto something. That at least one of the kids was still alive. Gennaro remained unimpressed. The shock of finding the severed leg left him with a grim determination to close the park and destroy it. No matter what Muldoon said, Gennaro suspected him of unwarranting enthusiasm and hopefulness. And you notice these prints? Muldoon asked, still looking at the ground. What prints? Gennaro said. These footprints. See them? Coming toward us from up the road. 
And they're an adult-sized print, some kind of rubber sole shoe. Notice the distinctive tread patterns. Gennaro saw only mud, puddles catching the light from the flashlight. You can see, Muldoon continued, the adult prints comes over here, and when they're joined up other prints, small and medium-sized, moving around in circles, overlapping, almost as if they're standing together, talking. But now they are... They, are, they, they seem to be running. He pointed off. There, into the park. Gennaro shook his head. You can see whatever you want in the mud. Muldoon got to his feet and stepped back. He looked down at the ground and with a sigh. Say what you like. I'll wager one of the kids survived, and maybe both. Perhaps even an adult as well. If these big prints belong to someone other than Regis, we've got to search the park. Tonight? Gennaro said. But Muldoon wasn't listening. He had walked away toward the embankment of soft earth, near the drain pipe for rain. He crouched again. What was that little girl wearing? Christ, Gennaro said, I don't know. Proceeding slowly, Muldoon moved forward toward the side of the road. And then they heard a wheezing sound. It was definitely an animal sound. Listen, Gennaro said, feeling panic. I think we better... Shh, Muldoon said. He paused, listening. It's just the wind, Gennaro said. They heard the wheezing again, distinctly this time. It wasn't the wind. It was coming from the foliage directly ahead of him, by the side of the road. It didn't sound like an animal, but Muldoon moved forward cautiously. He waggled his light and shouted, but the wheezing did not change character. Muldoon pushed aside the fronds of the palm. What is it? Gennaro said. It's Malcolm, Muldoon said. Ian Malcolm lay on his back, his skin grey-white, mouth slackly open. His breath came in wheezing gasps. Muldoon handed the flashlight to Gennaro, and he bent down to examine the body. I can't find the injury, he said. He's okay, chest, arms. The Gennaro shone the light on his legs. He put a tourniquet on. Malcolm's belt was twisted tight over his right thigh. Gennaro moved the light down the leg. The right ankle was bent outwards at an awkward angle from the leg. The trousers flattened, soaked in blood. Muldoon touched the ankle gently and Malcolm groaned. Muldoon stepped back and tried to decide what to do next. Malcolm might have other injuries. His back might be broken. It might kill him to move him. But if they left him here, he would die of shock. It was only because he had had the presence of mind to put a tourniquet on it that he hadn't already bled to death, and probably he was doomed. They might as well move him. Gennaro helped Muldoon pick the man up, hoisting him awkwardly over their shoulders. Malcolm moaned and breathed in ragged gasps. Legs, he said. Legs. When? Legs. Who's legs? Muldoon said. The little girl, Gennaro said. They carried Malcolm back to the jeep and rested him into the back seat. Gennaro tightened the tourniquet around his leg. Malcolm groaned again. Muldoon slid the trouser cuff up and saw the pulpy flesh beneath, the dull white splinters of protruding bone. We've got to get him back, Muldoon said. You're going to leave here without the kids, Gennaro said. If they went into the park, it's twenty square miles, Muldoon said, shaking his head. The only way we can find anything out there is the motion sensors. If the kids are still alive and moving around, the motion sensors will pick them up. And we can go right to them and bring them back. 
And if we don't take Dr. Malcolm right now, he'll die. Then we have to go back, Gennaro said. Yes, I think so. They climbed into the car, Gennaro said. Are you going to tell Hammond the kids are missing? No, Muldoon said. You are.